Hey guys, welcome back to our podcast. So I don't know if everybody listens to the end of the podcast or not, but I just wanted to uh, mention that I'm going to try a new um, host for the podcast to see if it works better for you guys. That way you don't have to sign into Storyboard every single time you want to listen to the podcast. So this way it's actually going to be like a, a RSS feed, meaning that you basically can either type in um, Shugs dash, so Shugs, S-U-G-G-S dash Sumner dash podcast into your podcast player and it should come up. Um, I'm working on Apple right now. It usually takes, like when I did my other podcast, it took um, like two or three weeks for that one, but it's already up on Google Podcasts and it's already up on Spotify. If you have any other types of of podcast players that you use, just let me know. I'll give you the links for those and um, I'll put them up on on those podcasts as well. So what, whichever kind you like, Alexa, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you want it to play on, I can give you that link for it, put it on that, that profile and you'll be able to listen to it. Um, I do want to mention if you do it on Spotify, we found this out with Jackie, you do have to make sure that after you follow, you click the little like bell button. So that that way you make sure that it will pop up anytime you have a new episode on there. All right. So I'll send an email about that as well, but let's get into our topic this week. So we're going to talk about intraoperative and postoperative care of our anesthesia patients and how... Like hypothermia has been a really big thing that we, has been talked about um, for a long time. I mean, this has gone back to the 80s that they've realized that if your patient is too cold, that we have we run the risks of lots of different things. But there was a recent paper put out in JAVMA that kind of re-emphasized just why we need to keep our patients warm when they're under anesthesia and postoperatively. So let's talk about some of some studies that have been done before. So one of the studies that had been done in 1991, it kind of looked at like how many patients died during pre like the pre-medication, the um, actual anesthesia, and then the post-op anesthesia. And they found that about one in 434 dogs died and it one in 344 cats died in that period of time as well. It was mostly in surgery and in post-op. There were only a couple of them that were pre-op that had died, but usually the post-op one was actually the most significant number that they found. So that was 1991. You know, we've definitely come a long ways from then. We've definitely done a lot of things to try to help with our intra-op care and our our post-op care. And for those people who think that this is just going to be for their, um, for like the people who are doing surgeries, like the surgery technicians or for the LVTs who are doing surgery, this is not like this is for pretty much any technician or assistant that is doing even sedation, because this is really important even for sedation. If you're giving dextomator, then you should know about these things. If you are doing like helping on blocking cats and stuff, then you should know about these things. If you are helping with the post-op care, so you're over in the hospital area or the ICU area, you need to know about these things because these are really important things. And then also just for receptionists, 
you know, this is also an important thing just to know for if somebody asks you questions of like, what are we doing in surgery to try try to make sure that they're stable? Or what are you doing after surgery to try to make sure they're stable? I've definitely had people have asked me like what what things we are doing in surgery to make sure that that patient is stable. And this is going to be one of them. And one of the really important things to touch on here is it's not just me. It's not just the doctor who's trying to make these pets stable. You know, I'm monitoring things just as much as I need to, but I also have to really focus on the patient and what I'm doing as far as the surgery goes. But the technicians and the assistants are really the ones that are going to be the ones who are going to help these pets the most. You know, you guys are the ones that are going to be implementing all of these things to make sure that they get through anesthesia safely and the post-operative period safely. So just a couple terms real quick. We talk about pre-operative, so that's before they've even been given um, their anesthesia. Usually they're giving a pre-medication at that point if we're doing full anesthesia. If you're doing sedation, then that's going to be just before you've given the sedation, basically. Then the anesthesia is going to be once you've actually given the anesthetic agent or for sedation, giving the sedation like dextomator and torb. And then the post-op is going to be when we're waking them up. So just, just some nomenclature so we know what I'm talking about as we're going through this. So we're going to talk real quick about some intra-op and post-op care. So the number one thing that killed patients, especially like in 1991 and even in now, because they've done tons of study on this as well, is hypothermia. So meaning that their temperature drops and they are cold. So in about 60 to 90% of humans and animals, this occurs during anesthesia and after anesthesia. That's why it's such a big topic because it actually like it occurs quite often. So you want to try to manage that as much as possible. For a dog, their normal temperature, what we want in surgery should be, and during sedation, should be 99.5 to 102.5. For cats, it's about 100.5 to 102.5. So they're a little bit higher. The There's kind of a difference between like what the temperatures we're taking. So it's called the core temperature versus the peripheral temperature. The core means like in your body. So like things that are really important inside. So it's going to be your your heart. It's going to be your lungs. It's going to be your brain. Our body wants to preserve those things because those are the most important organs in our body. Peripheral temperature is kind of just everything else, your limbs, your toes, you know, your ears. We don't care about those things as much um, as far as like trying to make sure that our body is going to continue to work, but they are still actually really important, just not as important as the core temperature. So actually the places that you're going to get the most accurate temperature is going to be the tympanic membrane, which is basically your eardrum. It's going to be in the nasopharynx area. So like in the back of the throat, in the esophagus, which is why in surgery we do the esophageal um, thermometer and by the pulmonary arteries, which are basically arteries around the heart and the lungs. Rectal temperatures are actually checking the peripheral body, not actually the core temperature. And they do lag behind a bit. So maybe there was a very sudden change in the core temperature. It may take a couple of minutes before that rectal temperature actually starts to read that, which is why when we're in surgery, it's actually really important to use the esophageal one, not a rectal temperature. 
The skin also is usually about two to four degrees lower than the core body temperature. So my finger is probably two to four degrees lower than what is by my heart, basically. There's this gradient that occurs between the core and the peripheral. Like I said, you know, you have your core is usually a different temperature than your peripheral is. So my my heart is at a different temperature than at my fingertip. And this is, you have to like kind of think of this as kind of like a window. So if it is hot, like summer hot, and I don't have an air conditioning, I don't have any way to be able to cool myself down, the best way to do that is going to be opening windows, right? Not just one window, like a bunch of windows. So that that way we get this air that kind of goes through the house. So it's kind of like that. So when our body wants to lose heat, it the peripheral blood, so the blood in my fingertips and in the dog's like tips of their their paws and their ears and stuff, that's going to vasodilate, meaning their vessels are going to become bigger. So that that way the heat can go through that area and then can get lost into the air, basically lost into the world. So that way we are getting rid of heat that way. Now, if I'm cold in the wintertime, we don't want those windows open, right? We want to close them. It is cold outside. We want to keep the temperature inside nice and warm. So if we're losing too much heat, then our body would naturally thermoregulate, meaning we're regulating our temperature, by closing off that peripheral blood. So it constricts the blood vessel at the end of my fingertips or the end of the dog's ears or whatever. So that that way it is keeping all of my warm air closer to my heart and my my lungs. Same thing in the house, you know, we're keeping the hot air inside, not letting it outside. All right, we're going to get into some nitty gritty things here. So we're going to talk real quick about thermoregulation. We just talked about what that means. So basically how we regulate the body. So if it was like a Facebook status, it would say it's complicated because that's what it is. It's really complicated. So for anybody who's super nerdy and wants to know, there are different types of nerves that sense heat and cold. Our A gamma fibers are what actually senses the cold and our C fibers sense the heat, which interestingly also... um, that plays a part in like your pain as well, the C fibers. But really what this just means is there are some nerves that are at the ends of our fingertips and our toes and everything that tell us whether we are whether it is hot or cold and how we're going how our body is going to deal with that. So our fingertips tell us, you know, it's cold outside, that goes up our nerves into our spinal cord, and it goes to a place in the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is like It's kind of like a thermostat. It tells your body what to do. If it is cold outside, the thermostat kicks on and says, you need to warm your body up. If it's hot outside, thermostat kicks on and says, you need to cool your body down. So if it's too cold, and let's say our patient is not under anesthesia, they're going to do a lot of the same things that we would do. So you kind of curl up into a ball. So you kind of like make yourself smaller. So that way you keep all the heat kind of closer to the inside of your body. You might go lay in the sun to try to help warm up. You might shiver because that's going to help you warm as well. But those are just the behavioral things. You also have things inside your body that are happening. So you might have vasoconstriction, meaning our blood vessels become smaller. So that that way it keeps all the blood towards our core, so towards our heart and lungs. Now, One interesting thing is that this thermoregulation actually decreases with age. So 
a lot of times you'll see like cats go heat seeking. They'll go find like he- like heaters and vents and stuff to sit by because their body cannot regulate as well. Same thing for like older people. You know, when they're in a room and you're they're just like freezing cold, that's because their body just can't regulate well enough to be able to make their body temperature go up. So a lot of older people are just always cold. All right, now we're going to talk a little bit about how heat is lost. Um, this is very specifically because I just see a lot of like when we need to bring dogs temperatures down, like um, knowing how that happens, like how does this happen? So this isn't just for anesthesia, but it's also talking about when we have those hyperthermic patients, patients who are really high in temperature, like how we can help them bring that temperature down. And I'll do something else on like heat stroke stuff on another time. This is going to be a quick, just like how this happens, because especially we need to know these things for our patients, because these are things that we need to be able to figure out how we can stop. So there are five types of heat loss. One is called radiation. That's basically like, you know, in the cartoons where they like draw the little pictures of of little squiggles above somebody who's really hot. That's essentially what that is. Like there's waves of heat that just basically come off of our body. The second one is convection. So that's when warm air just rises off of the body. So you could be like sitting down sweating like you just worked out an intense workout, you're laying down and your body is just going to like the warm air is just going to kind of wash over you. So that, that way it kind of gets all of that heat off of your body. Evaporation. So that's just like, you know, if you set out a glass of water and it'll eventually just go out into the atmosphere, like it's eventually going to, to go down without you even having to drink it. So it's just that the, the water goes up into the air. Respiration is the fourth one. That just means that our warm humidified gas or warm air that we're breathing in and out meets the cold air outside. So in our body, like think about where our lungs are. They're right next to the heart. It's right where we want to keep really warm air. So when we have like go outside into the cold and you see all that air, you know, the white mist or fog that you see coming from your breath, That's basically the warm air that's meeting that cold air. And so we'll lose heat that way because we're losing all the hot air that we have in our body and breathing in all this cold air. Last one is called conduction. It's basically when there's this heat energy that's transferred. It like if you were to put ice into a hot drink, you know, it's going to the heat is going to transfer to that cold object. So it's going to transfer to the ice. Same thing for like if you have a really hot dog. And hot dog, that's funny. But if you have a really hot dog and you put an ice pack on it, that heat is going to transfer over to the height, the ice pack. Now, now that I've kind of said that, um, radiation and convection are usually account for like 80% of the heat loss. So when that warm air comes off the body and when air kind of like flows past the body to be able to get all of that hot air out of the body. So Um, you know, usually you don't want to put things like towels, like wet towels over it, because if the body has that all that on it, there's no way that it can get all of that heat out. That's acting more as a conduction agent where that is being transferred from the hot body to the cold object. But that actually only accounts for a very, very small amount for how we lose our heat. So we don't actually want to put like cold towels on them. But Again, these are really important to know because like, how are we going to help the pet keep warm when we have them under anesthesia? 
So one of the things is to make sure that you have the skin covered. So with our anesthetic patients, we want to actually put towels over them, blankets over them, because any exposed skin is going to do the majority of those things. It's going to have radiation. It's going to have convection. It's going to have evaporation. So that's three main categories that we just talked about that are going to cause heat loss. So we don't want that to happen. We want to try to to prevent that as much as possible. All right, now let's talk about heat loss specifically for anesthesia. So this is, there are actually so many things that hypothermia does to the body under anesthesia and the drugs that we use and everything. Like you would think that this is just like, ah, they're cold, they're going to shiver, you know, not a big deal. They'll warm up eventually. But that's really not the case. There's actually a lot of things that happen. So when they're under anesthesia, their hypothalamus, that that thermostat that they have in their brain, does not recognize when they are hot or cold. So they cannot tell the rest of the body to do what it needs to do, to vasoconstrict, so make those blood vessels smaller. It can't tell it to keep all of its heat over where its heart and its lungs and stuff are. The body cannot do that because the hypothalamus is not working. Your thermostat is broken at the moment. Opioids and propofol. So opioids are going to be things like buprenex, fentanyl, like a lot of the pre-medications that are for pain, even TORB, when we do dextomator and TORB, that it's also an opioid. Um, those lower the threshold for shivering. So you, the body can't shiver until it is really, really cold. Dexidomator, it also inhibits the defenses against heat loss. So it stops you from being able to not get rid of that heat. It stops all of those those types of heat loss that we were just talking about. Anesthetics also cause vasodilation, so they're going to make the blood vessels become bigger at our periphery, so at our fingertips and at the dog's ears and the dog's toes. If it makes that bigger, they're more likely to lose that heat. Any sort of blocks that we do, so if you think about like cats who get a lumbosacral block or you think about animals who get a block around whatever you're doing the surgery at, like lidocaine block, that actually makes it so that those blood vessels don't know whether to vasoconstrict, so become smaller, or to vasodilate or become bigger. It usually causes them to vasodilate, which is going to add to our heat loss as well. And that site can't relay the message back to your hypothalamus to say, or your thermostat to say like, hey, we're at the wrong temperature. We need to fix this because the patient is under sedation or anesthesia. So there are three phases basically of like anesthesia and how the hypothermia or low blood temperature, low body temperature works. So the first phase is usually in the initial hour. So pretty much from when the patient is under anesthesia for one hour there's a large drop in temperature. I mean, there is the the body hasn't been able to figure out how to redistribute the heat from its core to its fingertips or a tip of its ears. And within the first hour, like you could actually lose about four degrees of temperature. Now, you might not think that that's like that bad, but let's say your temperature of your cat who we just pre-medicated, started out at 98. Now that dropped down to 94 just in that first hour. That's actually quite a lot. And that's without giving any supplemental heat. And it's not that it's just like the whole hour, like it happens really rapidly. So even in the first 20 minutes, 
it could still decline quite rapidly, even down to three degrees. So that first hour is actually like super important for keeping them really warm. The second phase usually happens over like two to five hours of being under anesthesia. And that's more slower, like there's not enough heat being produced and there's more heat being lost, especially with like our anesthesia machine. We were just talking about how we have respiration with our warm gas in our lungs and the if it meets the cold air, which that's what's happening with our anesthesia machines, it's really hard to heat those things. But um, if you don't have them heated, it causes them to lose a lot of warmth just that way as well. And the last phase is going to be at about three to five hours. So that actually, that's usually like when the temperature remains mostly unchanged. Like it's, it's probably already cold. It's as cold as it's going to get. So, and that's without doing any intervention, like I said. And people, it's interesting because they actually really tightly control the temperature. They control it between 97.2 degrees and 99.5 degrees. So just as a reference for anybody who doesn't know a normal human's temperature, it's 98.5 degrees. There's a little bit of variation there. It's like technically 98.7, but you know, you get the gist. But 97 to 99. So that's a really small range. That's only two degrees difference between those two. Like they really regulate people. And that should be how we do it in veterinary medicine as well. So we can avoid complications. Some of the complications that happen from hypothermia are going to be that, that a lot of times they're going to have problems with their immune system. So when they're hypothermic, it kills off a lot of their neutrophils, which is a really important white blood cell. You need white blood cells to be able to fight off infection. And if I'm doing surgery, there's a lot of bacteria that's in the world. You know, it's not just like bacteria from our instruments, it's bacteria on the patient's skin that I have to cut through. If it's a dog fight wound, it's it's you know bacteria that's on that dog fight wound. If it's an abscess, it's bacteria in that abscess. And if we don't have these patients warm, they're more likely to get an infection because of it. Another big factor with this, like causing infections, is also because of the vasoconstriction that the patient is trying to do after it's starting to wake up from anesthesia. So it's trying to, you know, make your blood vessels smaller so it put, puts all of that blood near the places that needed needed to be in the core, so your lungs and your heart. But because of that, it doesn't deliver as much oxygen to that tissue either, which again, in turn, cre- causes more infection. And then in humans, they found actually that in for hypothermia, it actually triples the wound infection rates when they have dropped below that 97 degrees, which is why they so tightly control that. It can also cause coagulopathies. So a coagulopathy means that your blood cannot clot for one reason or another. Um, a lot of times it'll be that it reduces the platelet function. So meaning that the platelets are the first thing that go to a wound. Let's say you cut your finger on a paper, stupid paper cuts, right? So you cut your finger on a paper and immediately the first thing that's going to go there is your platelets. So thank you platelets. All right, the platelets, little these little tiny purple dots, um, you want to see them, go ask Jordan or LaToya to look at them. But these little tiny purple dots go to your your cut and they make it so that it tells the rest of your blood to come over and start making a blood clot. If you do not have platelets, your blood will not clot. 
The other thing it does is that it increases coagulation times. So there's lots of other factors that also make your blood clot. And when we do clotting times, we're usually doing something called a PT and a PTT. I won't get into like all the numbers because there's like this whole huge number system of it. But basically, it makes it so that your blood does not want to clot. It also affects your cardiovascular. So cardiovascular is going to be your heart and your blood vessels. It decreases how much blood your your heart can put out. So you need that blood to go out to your lungs. You need that blood to go out to your body. And it decreases just by being cold. It decreases your heart from being able to do that. And then once we've like realized that this patient is super cold, really quick rewarming can actually cause like shock-like episodes to the heart and the cardiovascular system. And then if there are temp our cat or a dog's temperature is really cold, so like under 87 degrees, that can cause an arrhythmia of the heart. Or if it's under 86 degrees, it can cause ventricular fibrillation, which basically means death. So we don't want to get to that point. So those are way too low of body temperatures. It also affects our metabolism. So the, there's decreased blood flow to the liver and the kidneys, which are very important. Our liver and our kidneys get rid of waste in our body. And if we do that, like if we slow down our, our liver and our kidneys, a lot of the drugs that we give IV are going to go through the liver or the kidneys. So they can't metabolize it fast enough because they're too cold and our liver and our kidneys are not functioning correctly. So they're going to take a lot longer to wake up or potentially don't wake up because of the fact that they still have this anesthesia in their system. This doesn't happen as much with our inhalant anesthesias, meaning when we put them on gas, but it will happen to things like dextomator and torb. There's also the problem of shivering post-op. So once they're awake from their surgery, when they shiver, it actually increases their metabolic rate, which means that they have enzymes in their body that break lots of things down. And those enzymes will start working on overtime. And it's when they do that, it makes the heart rate increase. It makes their body temperature increase by like 500%. But it also uses a lot of energy. It's really hard on the heart and it uses up a lot of glucose as well. So some of these patients might be in some pretty severe hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, because they're too cold. The other thing is, is it can raise intracranial and intraocular pressures. So in the brain, it's super interesting because we actually do use cold for brain trauma, which you want. If you have a brain trauma patient, you don't want to put them on heat because we want to preserve their brain. But for when they when you have a post-op patient, like if you increase their brain, like the pressure in their brain, it's almost like they got a concussion. So we don't want to do that. We want to raise them slowly. And then in humans, um, I don't know if anybody else has been under anesthesia, but like in humans, they've actually described that the shivering post-op is the most unpleasant experience of the entire surgery and post-op care. Now I'd say like, so I've had a surgery where I had to have like a mask cut out of my, my abdomen, like chestish abdomen area. And I would say probably the, when they extubated me, so took the tube out of my throat and my throat like hurt so bad. I'd say that was the first thing that was really painful for me. And then the second thing was going to be the shivering. I could not stop shivering. I was so cold, but it's like painful to shiver. It's not fun. 
And then other random things that it causes as well is it makes it so that the ICU time is even longer. So they've had it found a correlation between like when they had surgery and if they were hypothermic after the surgery or it, or in the surgery and after surgery, that they the time in the ICU was extended even longer. So we want to try to make sure that we keep our temperatures you know, normal so that way they're not in the ICU for as long. And then it can also produce lactic acid. So think about like when you're running and you have like a Charlie horse, that's this thing called lactic acid that's building up in your legs. It is painful. And it can also cause metabolic acidosis, meaning your blood becomes really acidic. And that's not good either. That's really hard to overcome. Like as if you ever see our DKA patients, like we do a lot to try to help those patients as far as like fluids and all sorts of things, but it is very hard to come back from. So we try to make sure we don't get to that point. So with all of this being said, like all of the crazy things that could potentially happen, now you know all of the risks of it. Now let's talk about how we can prevent it and how we can treat it. So prevention is going to be easier than treatment. You know, ideally we want to try to to warm the patient before it's under anesthesia. So like warming, doing warming things just after you've given the pre-anesthetic or when you've given the dextomator and you're waiting for it to fall asleep. I guess a lot of times we're giving those injections IM, right? And waiting for them to fall asleep. One of the big things about all of those ways that heat is lost, like I said before, is that it's lost through the skin. So the easiest way to try to help that heat loss is to cover the skin, put a blanket over them, put a towel over them, try to make it so that they can't have a bunch of heat loss. Because think about how cold it is sometimes in that treatment room. It is freaking cold sometimes. The other thing that you can do is make sure that they're not on something that's going to conduct a lot of coldness, like cold metal surfaces, the cold floor. So put them on a blanket underneath them because otherwise they're just going to have heat loss from their body to that really cold surface. And then try as much as possible to keep the room warm. If you're with Dr. K and he wants the room really cold, tell him all of these things that potentially can cause problems with his patient and tell him you're going to turn up the heat. Um, I always have the heat up in my in my surgery suites. The technicians know like I'm fine with it. Please turn the temperature up. I am a very hot person. I will sweat profusely. But I would rather me sweat than my patient have some sort of complication. So I'd rather that they become, they stay very warm. And then that's kind of like it for our prevention things. You can do things like putting socks on them and stuff. But let's talk about more like treatment stuff now. So with treatment, um, with when they're in surgery, like one of the things is to cover them with blankets and stuff. So I know that we put a drape over them, but before we even put that drape over, like put a blanket down over the part that's not going to be having surgery on them. So like, let's say we're doing a spay, you know, put a blanket over their chest so that that way it keeps them warm that way. We're keeping that heat in. Giving them warm fluids is going to be really important because like, let's say um, I'm doing an abdominal exploratory. I'm looking for a foreign body or something. Using warm water for a lavage to flush out the abdomen is going to warm their core temperature. So that's going to help with keeping them warm. Uh, but also think about things with other animals too. It's like when you're doing your scrubbing, you know, using flush that's warm or when you're doing a blocked cat put warm, put that fluid in the warmer while you're getting everything set up. So that, that way it's warm and ready to go. As soon as you're, you have your cat under sedation, you can set up your line really quickly and you'll have warm fluids into that cat because 
Just think about like how cold those fluids are that you're putting into its bladder. And that's, you're putting it into part of like sort of the core of them. And that's not good either. Make sure the table is nice and warm. You know, turn the table on for the surgery suites, but also when you're doing laceration repairs, you're doing blocked cats, abscesses, anal gland abscesses, put hot water in the sink so that that way that hot water rises and is able to keep your patient warm that way. And again, put a towel over the rest of it that's not being worked on so that way it keeps that hot water and that heat into that patient's body. Because think about like what we do when we shave them is we've now exposed more skin. So if you're doing an abscess, you shave around the abscess, you're exposing more skin to heat loss. If you're shaving for a spay, all of that area that's shaved is now exposed for heat loss. So trying to keep as much of the body you know, covered and warm as possible. The other thing is going to be you can't wrap their feet in like bubble wrap or plastic wrap or even socks because um, they're going to lose heat through their periphery, like we said, with the toes, the ears, things like that. So you can like plastic wrap their feet. Just make sure that you don't do it super tight or anything. And then for severe patients, um, like let's say they're waking up and they're just like severely cold. Everything we did did not work. They're just really, really cold. We can put things like warm saline in the abdomen. So like basically like a flush warm saline into the abdominal cavity to try to bring their temperature up. For little puppies and kittens, like little tiny babies, you can actually put them in like a warm water bath. So you just get warm water, put it in something like the um, cat litter boxes and put a bag over that cat litter box. So that, that way they kind of sit in this bag as a bed in the warm water. So that way they're not touching the water and it's not making them colder. They're actually sitting in this nice little bed that's kind of around them. Using the bear hugger, super important as well. You know, for our puppies that we're doing, that we're resuscitating, for any of our patients, the bear hugger is going to be really good as well. They've actually found that it's not as good as one of these other, like there's like this uh, blanket that like kind of moves not just the heat around, but it's like water and heat. Um it's super expensive, so it's usually not something that we get, but it's something that they use in humans. So you can use the brow hugger as well. And then another big thing to try to help just with our problems with um, any sort of anesthetic complications for infection because of their body temperature going low is to give antibiotics before the premedication is even given because you're going to be let's say you give dextomator and torb, you know, that's a little bit hard to give it beforehand, but once they're asleep, immediately give it. So that, that way it's already on board before we've done anything else. So we can decrease the chances of having an infection. Or if they're going into surgery, as soon as the premedication is given IV, give the antibiotic as IV as well. That way it's already working before a cut is even made into them. Because also remember, like people always think about like, well, you haven't got into it yet, so I can just give it after I've given the pre-medication. But think about our clippers. Like our clippers cause cuts, right? Like they cause razor burn. You'll cut the nipples on accident. It happens, but let's prevent this before that even happens. All right, I think that I've gone off on my soapbox enough about um, hypothermia. I'm just going to touch on a couple other things really quickly. So one thing is extubation. So it used to be that we followed this rule that if the dog swallowed twice, that you could pull the tube, that it would be okay, they'd be fine, and they'd wake up just fine. 
It's that's just like an urban myth, unfortunately. Like they've done lots of studies to figure out like is two swallows enough or is there going to be like do you need them sitting up? And it's actually going to be that they're more likely not to die if you wait to extubate them, so take that tube out that what they use to breathe when they're lifting their head and kind of slightly chewing on the tube. Now this is a sweet spot, right? Like you got to get it before they actually bite that tube in half. So you got to be on top of them, watching them pretty constantly while that patient is waking up, which I know is really annoying. You're like, I have other things to do. I need to chart. I need to do all these things. But, you know, we want to make sure our patients stay safe as well. Other thing is going to be monitoring vitals. This is really important for especially like our hospitalized patients, for for our ICU technicians, is monitoring the temperature really like the TPR, but mostly the temperature every five to 10 minutes until the patient is awake. You know, set a timer for it. So you can just like set a timer for every 10 minutes. That way, every time the timer goes off, you check to make sure that the, to see if the the patient is getting warmer. And then we don't want them to get too warm because if they become hyperthermic, then we have like more problems. I'm not going to get into that because that's going to make this an hour long podcast. But All of those things too, like all of your TPRs and stuff should be also documented under your anesthesia sheet because if there's a problem, it's because of the anesthesia and post-op care, not because the patient had a problem when it was in the hospital. So we want to make sure that it's like put under the appropriate spot. And then another big thing is lube their eyes. So I know we lube their eyes before we go into surgery. But we also should do it afterwards. So as soon as they're sedate, lube their eyes. When they're waking up, lube their eyes again. That's just going to decrease the chances of them getting an ulcer, which is also basically going to cause an infection in the eye. So we don't want that to happen as well. All right. I think that is it. And now time for my story. My story is actually not one from the past. It's literally one right now. So I'm like so dedicated to giving you guys a nice sounding podcast that I don't have my heat on in here and I don't wear a jacket when I'm in here in this freezing cold room at the bottom of my house. Like it's in this weird, I don't even know what you call it. It's like kind of like a basement, like the, the dirt comes up to my windows. So it's like sort of underground, like part of it's underground and then the rest of it is above the ground, if that makes any sense. But it doesn't stay warm very well, even though this is where the the thermostat is. So usually I put a space heater in here, warm it up beforehand, which I did today. And then I turn it off to do my podcast. So I think that all of these things are happening to me as I'm trying to do my podcast and shivering in here. But um, like I said, real dedicated to making sure you guys get a good sounding podcast. And if you have any questions, again, let me know. Ask me anything you want. Ask me to do any topics. If you want any topics for GP or kennels or wherever, like if you have a topic that you want to know about, let me know. I will do it for you. I have a long running list of things that I'm doing and I'm slowly getting through all of them to make sure that you guys get you know what it is that you need, what you think is going to be important at this time. I do have another funny story for you real quick is I did my other podcast. I did the whole freaking thing, like an hours long podcast, right? Which usually takes me even longer because I have to like stop and start. And anyways, so I did this whole podcast. I went back to listen to it again and found out that it was skipping every couple of minutes and I had to redo the whole thing. Oh man, that was rough. It was real rough, but I got it done and, um, 
Yeah. I don't know if you guys notice, like if, you, if anybody else listens to Vetsplanation podcast, but I do a lot of these same topics and I just kind of put it in terms for our clients. Um, this one is not going to be one that I'm doing for our clients, but I'll probably do post-operative care for both you guys and for my clients or for our clients as well. So, and that means like, what do they do at home basically? All right. So like I said, any questions, feel free to grab me. I'm going to send out an email and um, just let me know what other things you listen to podcasts on. All right. Thanks guys.